Welcome to All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church. I'm Matt Fender, and this week we're going to be doing week six of our six-week class on apologetics. We're going to be wrapping it up. Um, I'm going to, you know, because of the nature of this material, I'm going to spend some time, you know, reviewing as we've done every week. Um, we're going to go back over the sort of fundamentals of the of worldviews, the source of our knowledge, transcendental argument for God. Um, we're going to review the material we did last week on the problem of evil, and then I'm going to spend some time this morning, and in a way that I hope will be helpful, looking at the origin of sin and evil. I had some questions about that last week, and um, there is not a definitive answer to it, but I'm going to address what the confession says, what the scriptures say, and see if we can have um, as fulsome an understanding of that as God's revelation allows. And then we'll, uh, we'll deal with some more uh, tweets and Instagram posts at the end as we, as we look at how to practically... Um, engage with people that are making statements and assertions that are contrary to the Word of God. So let me open us in prayer, and we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord. You're holy, you're just, you're merciful. You are the creator of the universe. You are the author and finisher of our salvation. And it is to your glory that we direct our lives and our resources and our purpose. We thank you, Lord, for being able to assemble here this morning in your name, to do so freely without immediate fear of arrest. We pray that you will bless us this morning as we study how to defend the faith. Help me to be clear and accurate in the things that I say. Help everyone in the room to, to be attentive and um, to, to, to really make every effort to understand the material and help me to do my best to convey it. Uh, we pray also for the children that are being educated elsewhere in the building. We pray for their teachers, that you would help them to be winsome um, and clear. And we pray that for the children, that you would, for each and every one of them, Lord, that you would regenerate his heart and he would grow to say that he never knew a day when he was not trusting in Christ for his salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So... Um, as we, as, we, as we sort of work through our review, this was our nutshell statement of what we're attempting to do with presuppositional apologetics. We don't conclude God, we start with God. And we show them that if you don't start with God, your worldview is absurd. Now, I, I think I dealt with this, it was the first or second week, that when do, having an apologetic conversation, it is critically important that we don't start with not God. We don't allow our opponent to set the rules of the game such that we're going to assume there's no God and then try to prove God through evidence or logic. That is flawed. It is not a neutral position. It is, in fact, an anti-Christian position, and it is counterfactual and counter to reality. God exists. Everybody knows he exists, and even the, the purported atheist who is actively denying the existence of God knows better. Um, and the, the picture that we, from Cornelius Van Til that we talked about is the idea of two people sitting in a room, breathing air, and arguing whether the air exists. So keep that in, in, in your mind as we work through this. Um, so, first, our basic premise where we start as Christians is that the Bible is true. This is our most fundamental presupposition, and we should readily concede that it is our most fundamental presupposition. If somebody says to you, yeah, well, you only think that because the Bible says it, you can say, yes, sir, you're right. I do think that because the Bible says it. In fact, my entire worldview, my entire understanding of creation, of my purpose as a human, of the meaning of history, of ethics, of morality, of where the universe is going, is all grounded in the Bible, because I believe it's the inherent word of God. Yes, sir. 
So don't, 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 don't shy away from that. And you say, I understand that you, sir, don't believe the Bible is true, or at least that's what you say. Um, but let's talk about what you believe. And we're going to go on offense, and we're going to explore the inconsistencies in the worldview of our opponent. But it's critical that we remember that our ultimate authority as Christians is the Bible, and that for the unbeliever, the ultimate authority is ultimately himself. And most people that we're encountering in 21st century Virginia, in the West, frankly, in in the 21st century, will readily ultimately acknowledge this, right? Because this, this this is the zeitgeist. This is what is out there in our culture is everyone is going to define his own meaning. Everyone is going to define his own life and live his life the way he, he wants to. And, and that's ultimately what's at the root of all this, you know, transgender business. You know, this, you know that I, I, you, you have to acknowledge me for however I decide I am. You know, I, whatever, whatever I say I am, that's what I am, right? My, my psychological identity is real and everyone else must bow to it. That's grounded in this idea of creating your own meaning. Right, that you're you're going to define it for yourself, and and really, I think I said this uh, one of the early weeks. This goes back to Nietzsche, right, and his 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 guy with the lantern walking around in the marketplace, the madman, you know, pointing out that once you deny God, once you make the enlightenment move of denying God, you can't keep all the stuff associated with God. You can't keep the metaphysics and the epistemology and the ethics that go along with Christianity. So there's nothing left. And Nietzsche's answer to that was, well, go define your own meaning. You're, gonna, you're, you're just, you're just going to grab a hold of it and just make it out of the raw stuff of the universe and define meaning for yourself. Um, that, of course, is no answer, um, and it's maybe not an accident that Nietzsche went insane. Um, as, I mean, frankly, if you were staring down the there is no meaning and you're the sort of thinking person who worries about these kinds of things, um, you're liable to find yourself in a very difficult position. Um, so we talked a lot about worldviews, right? Worldviews is kind of where we're at when we're doing presuppositional apologetics. And what is a worldview? A worldview is a network of presuppositions. What's a presupposition? A presupposition is a basic premise, um, something that you believe sort of at, at the, the base of how you live your life. Um, things like the laws of physics are going to work the same way tomorrow that they work today, that my memory is reliable. Um, things, you have ethical presuppositions, things like, you know, it's wrong to murder people. You know, you don't sit around contemplating whether or not it's wrong to murder people. You just take it as the basic assumption. Um, so that's, that's, that, so those, those presuppositions work together to create our worldview. And the Christian worldview is, is grounded, of course, as I said earlier, in the Word of God, right, on the Bible. That's our worldview. Um, if those of you who listen to Al Mohler, he says every morning that he's interpreting the news from a Christian worldview. Well, that's what he means, right? Is it's, it's grounded in the, the world as interpreted, as understood, based upon the Word of God. But when we're doing apologetics this way, the worldview of our opponent is the key to defending the faith. And we're looking to first understand what it is. And keep in mind, figuring this out is super easy because everybody wants to tell you what he believes, right? If you ever tried doing evangelism, and I hope you know, many of you have, at some point, you know, the other guy doesn't want to listen to you, right? They don't want to sit there and listen to you talk about the Bible and talk about the gospel, and let me, let me tell you what the truth of the gospel is. They want to tell you what they believe. So with this approach, you're going to let them. How easy is that? Really? Well, tell me what you believe. What do you think happens when you die? What do you believe? Do you believe in God? Well, why? Right? That's, and this is, this is anybody can do this because everybody wants to tell you. 
If you ever read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, what's everybody's favorite subject? Himself, right? <laughs> so we're taking advantage of that proposition um, with this apologetic method. Um, so we're going to start, start by, tell, tell me about your worldview. And you don't have to use the word worldview. Tell me what you believe. What do you believe is right and wrong? What do you think is the meaning of life? What's man's purpose? And, and you know, you might get some definitive answers. You might get some, well, I don't know. You know but, but, whatever, but you'll get something. Um, you're not going to get a, no, I refuse to talk about that. I refuse to tell you what I believe. Um, so what do we need to make up a worldview, right? Um, the three main areas of philosophy that make up a worldview are metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And metaphysics is, you know, the sort of big questions of life, um, origin of the universe, um, purpose of man, where history is going. The um, Bible gives us all that. Epistemology is our theory of knowledge. How can we know anything? The Bible gives us that too. And then, of course, the one that's most significant for our approach we're taking in this class is ethics and morality, right? What is right and wrong? How should we live our lives? How should we interact with other people? How can we have good character? And again, the Bible gives us answers to that as well. So that's sort of like, in a nutshell, what we do with worldviews. And we've, we've pointed out that when we're dealing with a secular person, with secular materialism being the, the dominant practical thinking around us, that what we see is really inadequate answers to those questions. Really, no, no meaningful metaphysics, um, no meaningful epistemology, and an ethics and morality that is grounded purely on a matter of personal opinion. Uh, which is sort of like really no morality at all once you, once you ask a couple of questions. So how are we going to use that? We're going to use that by using the TAG, the Transcendental Argument for God. And remember, and this is our last week, so I'm going to say this to you a lot because I want you to walk out of here being able to say this, presuppositional apologetics seeks to defend the faith by exposing the presuppositions of the unbeliever, contrasting them with those of the Christian, and demonstrating the irrationality and absurdity of the unbeliever's position. So we're exposing, we're contrasting, and we're demonstrating. And one powerful way to do that is via the transcendental argument for God. So how does that work? Um, so the quote from Greg Bonson that we've looked at repeatedly, a transcendental argument begins with any item of experience or belief whatsoever and proceeds by critical analysis to ask what conditions or what other beliefs would need to be true in order for that original experience or belief to make sense be meaningful, or be intelligible to us. So this is not limited to ethics and morality. It is true for any belief whatsoever, right? It could be, you know, blue cheese tastes good. And I realize that may be a matter of opinion here, but if I say blue cheese tastes good, what things have to be true in order for that to be even a meaningful statement, right? Well, first, there has to be such a thing as blue cheese, and I have to have the ability to taste it, Right? I have to have a basic way of knowing that the cheese is really there. I have a way, a way of knowing that I have a sense of taste and that I can rely on the information being transmitted to my brain right, via that sense of taste, right? that there really is a piece of cheese on my tongue and that it's, that it's somehow you know, working through some biological process that I, Matt Fender, do not understand to communicate that information to my brain and that my brain is then comparing that information with memories and past experiences of other things that I have tasted to make it help me make an evaluation as to whether this is a good or a bad taste, right? And those all things all have to be true and reliable 
in order for me to be able to make a meaningful statement that blue cheese tastes good. And you could do the exact same thing if you think blue cheese tastes nasty, um, then it doesn't matter either way. You're making that evaluation in order for that evaluation to work. Those underlying things have to be true. So what we're doing with the transcendental argument is just taking something that other person believes and going through this kind of critical analysis. Um, so simplified, how does the transcendental argument for God work? We ask, what is something you believe? How do you know? What has to, and what has to be true in order for that to, to be meaningful? And this will work with any knowledge, but it's, it tends to be, unless you're talking to someone who's very sort of philosophically minded, when you start talking about how do you know you're really sitting here talking to me this morning, you know, there are people who are happy to have that conversation with you and for whom that can be useful, but there's plenty of other people who are just going to roll their eyes and think that this is just silly and not meaningful, right? But with respect to everybody, once we switch to ethics and morality, that's going to be a different question because everybody has to think about ethics and morality. Um, so when we reason from morality, we know that everybody has basic ideas about right and wrong. You have to, otherwise you couldn't, couldn't exist, right? You couldn't interact with other people at all. Maybe if you, you know, could somehow live in a state of nature where you were you know, sitting down in the woods somewhere and there was unlimited food freely available and you could just pick the apples off the tree and eat them and, and be by yourself, um, you, you would have a limited need for ethical principles. Um, but in, in, in a complex society such as ours, um, we're making ethical decisions constantly with every interaction that we have, with every word that we speak, um, with every dollar that we spend, with every moment that we have, how we spend our time. Um, we're constantly making ethical and moral decisions. Um, so one of the points that we've made repeatedly over the last several weeks is that without God or some kind of transcendental authority, some kind of authority that's beyond our ability to observe and reason, all moral statements are matters of opinion, right? I can say, um, you know, it's wrong to murder unborn babies, and somebody else can say, Abortion is a basic human right. And without an appeal to something outside yourself, each is just a matter of opinion, right? Because you can say, well, it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to murder. Um, okay, fine, why? What, what is that grounded in? And ultimately, as a Christian, we're very quickly going to say, hey, well, you know, Sixth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's right there. Let's open it up. It's the word of God. It's true. It's inerrant. God said it. Therefore, that's a basic moral principle on uh, which we live our lives and that we can use to govern human affairs. Um, but to the unbeliever who doesn't believe the Bible is true, he's, he's going to be unpersuaded by that. Now, he really knows in his heart that it's true because the law of, law of God is written on his heart, but he's in rebellion against God, so he doesn't want to accept it. So we're going to instead take his moral proposition and say, really, so you think it's virtuous to kill unborn babies, why? What makes that good? Why, what makes personal autonomy so, so, so high in this you know, hierarchy of values, why is that so important? Um, and ultimately, without an appeal to something outside, without appeal to God or something like God, the answer is, because I think so. Part of the inconsistency we're seeking to expose is that everybody, and I said this a minute ago, but I want to keep saying it, everybody has basic moral instincts. Not only do you practically have to have some ethical rules by which to live your life, you also fundamentally have a conscience, right? And, we, and some people have hardened their hearts to a greater degree than others, but, but ultimately 
the law of God is there, right? Ultimately, nobody really walks around thinking, I can do whatever I want, right? Everybody is, is somehow constrained, because ultimately, you don't want everybody else to do whatever he wants, right? And that's the nature of what a, a moral proposition is. Um, we talked about dealing, then, with statements of moral relativism, because once you, once you expose that there's no that the person you're talking to has no external based thing to appeal to for morality then you end up with well it's just a matter of opinion okay yeah you're right it's just that's just my opinion okay so why should your opinion have greater moral authority than mine or anyone else's because it can't be true that we each just get to do whatever we want and we talked about that so with the statement here on the screen i don't believe in absolute morality it's about what's right and wrong for me you have your morality and i have mine or alternatively, don't try to impose your morality on me. Right? This is absurd, because for a moral truth to be a moral truth, it must necessarily be universal. Otherwise, um, it isn't a moral truth. Um, and you know, people have posited some sort of intermediate position of cultural relativism, that you're only bound by the moral propositions of your, the culture in which you were raised. Um, that's equally absurd, because we can point to lots of counterintuitive examples where various cultures at various times have advocated or and approved of conduct which the person you're talking to is going to think is immoral, right? You can think about Germany in 1939. You can think about African chattel slavery as practiced in the United States up until 1865. Um, you p- pick whatever you want. It's easy, easy enough, depending on who you're talking to, to just make a move to something that he doesn't like that at some point some culture has said was okay. So that, that clearly can't be right. Yeah, so an, another thing you can do, if, if you're dealing with a moral statement with which you agree, if it's something like caring for the poor or not polluting the river, then you can sort of say, gosh, well, you know, I'm glad that you think that we should not pollute the river or not pollute the air. I, I absolutely agree with that. You know, uh, why, why, why do you think so? Right? I think so because of the dominion mandate or because you know, Jesus has to care for the poor. You know, the Bible tells me that's what's right and wrong, but um, what's your basis for it? So that's, that's a move you can make. It's not required, but it's, but it's something that can be helpful um, to try to be winsome. We talked about Proverbs 26, um, verses 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And we explained how how to use that, right? That we're not we're not going to answer the fool according to his folly in the sense that we're going to have a have a discussion based upon his wrong presuppositions. We're not going to assume not God, right? Um, just like we're not going to talk to the man who thinks he's a woman and and go along with his little make believe act. You know, we're not we're not going to do that. Right, because we're, we know that the Bible is true, and we know that the world is the way God created it. But we are going to give an answer in verse five because we don't want the fool to be wise in his own eyes. But we're going to do so based upon the Word of God. All right. So let me stop there. This will be our last review of that material. Does anybody have any questions about any of that stuff before I move on to going back over the problem of evil? All right. Seeing none. Um, we talked last week um, about the problem of evil. And the problem of evil, in a nutshell, as Greg Monson puts it, you know, is God impotent 
or is he a sadist? Right? Or more clearly, perhaps, if it's true, Christian, that God is real and he's perfectly good and he's all-powerful, then why is there evil in the world? And we talked about, this is a very common objection, and we talked about how to deal with it, right? And first, we demonstrate that it's not really a logical problem, that if we look, if we look at the, the, prep, the propositions of Christianity correctly, um, they're perfectly consistent. And then we have to think about the kind of emotional, psychological objection, and, and we're going to talk about that again quickly this week. Um, so the, the key to dealing logically with the problem of evil is recognizing that there is a third premise. God is all-powerful, God is perfectly good, but also God has a morally sufficient reason for the suffering and evil he foreordains and allows. And the new material I'm going to give you this week, we're going to deal with that a little more in Scripture, right? But God is, is all-powerful, he is good, and he has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that he allows. And so once you have those lined up, then when someone says to you, well, it can't be true that God is all-powerful and all-good because evil, you can say, no, 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 God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that he allows, and the Scripture says so. Um, so that sort of dispenses with the logical problem. Um, but, you know, people are going to find that unsatisfying, right? Someone who doesn't believe those premises say, okay, well, you may have said something which is not inconsistent, but I, I don't find it satisfying that this God that you're telling me about um, can be real. It just doesn't seem to make, to make sense to me. I don't believe it. Well, ultimately, remember, we can't make anybody believe it. You're only going to believe it if God regenerates your heart and the Holy Spirit makes you believe it. Um, but let's talk a little more how to, how to deal with that, right? Um, what, the, what the skeptic here is saying is, I am unsatisfied with your premise that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that he allows. I want to know what that is. I want to know why God allows the three-year-old to get cancer and die. Um, and that, that can be daunting to us at first, but if we unravel it a little bit, if we pull the string, what we're going to see is that what the skeptic is really saying is, I'm not going to accept God as an ultimate authority unless I get to judge God in such a way that I'm the ultimate authority. I'm going to decide whether God is good, and then if I decide he's good, then maybe I'll believe he exists. Well, that's not a move you're allowed to make, Mr. Skeptic, because the God of the universe, the God who is real, the God who I know exists and you know exists, is bigger than you, and he's the king and judge of the universe. And if he's real, as I know he is and you know he is, then you don't get to judge him. That's not how this works. So the God that you're seeking to judge is not the God of the Bible. He's not the God of Christianity, and he's not the God that you and I both know exists. We don't, we don't, we don't have this conversation on the basis that you get to judge God. Um, we talked last week about several chapters towards the end of the book of Job, and I'm not going to go back over that. But here in Job 41, we see Job repenting, right? Because Job, Job sort of starts by saying, and I thought this was tremendous in terms of scriptural authority of dealing with the problem of evil. Job sort of complains and says, gosh, um, you know, he, and he's asking all these rhetorical questions, you know, to, the point of which is, I haven't done anything wrong. 
look at me, I'm faultless, I'm without excuse, so why would these things happen to me? And God sort of responds by essentially saying, I created the universe, who are you to answer back? And Job ultimately repents, and you see that here at the end, Job 41 verse, uh, verses, here, I've got one through six up here, um, but at verse six he says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Um, and this is sort of a, an incredibly powerful and poetic bit of scripture that sort of says to us, who are you to judge God? Who are you to answer back to God? And that's ultimately the emotional and psychological answer here, is that God, we know logically God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that he allows. And if he's really God, if he's a God in the sense that the Bible describes him, then we don't get to judge him. He made us. He is sovereign. We are his creatures. We don't get to judge him anymore. My dog gets to judge me. Even less so, frankly, because I didn't make the dog. Um, and then the other argument that we have to never forget when we're dealing with the problem of evil is we've got to remember our transcendental argument. Because when someone says to you, I don't believe in God because there's evil in the world, after sitting here now for five weeks, what is your response? What do you mean by evil? Why is, it, why is it evil? Why does it bother you that the three-year-old gets, gets cancer and dies? What's wrong with that? You say you don't believe in God. You say you don't believe in absolute morality. You say there's no basis for meaning other than we, we create ourselves. So how is the statement, it's evil that a three-year-old gets cancer and dies, even a meaningful statement? Right? We're going right back to our transcendental argument. What has to be true for that to be a meaningful statement? Well, to begin with, there has to be some standard of what's good and evil. What's right and wrong? What's your basis for that, Mr. Skeptic? How do you know what evil is? And once you make that move, we're right back to everything we've been talking about for five weeks. Because I can agree with you. Yes, that, that, that's, that's evil. But I know it's evil because I know what good and evil is because I've read my Bible. What's your basis for that, sir? All right, so that's my review of the problem of evil. Does anybody have any questions about that or want to talk about that? Now you've had a week to reflect on it. Yes, in the back, Turner. Um, the comment is that I may have miscited the material from Job, and that it was 42 instead of 41. That may very well be true. I am known for sloppiness in my slides, and you, it is in fact true because I just opened my Bible to chapter 42. So... Um, well, well said, uh, Mr. Cole. All right, anything else about that before I move on? All right. So, um, had a question last week about the origin of evil. This is a much more difficult question, right? I think I have given you what I hope is a satisfactory answer on a rhetorical basis for how we deal with the problem of evil when defending the faith, right? We've got some pretty good answers to that. But the much more difficult question, the one to which there ultimately isn't a 100% satisfactory response, is what's the origin of evil? Right? We know that God is good. We know he's eternal. We know he's all-powerful. We know he's all-knowing. And we know that he created the universe in the space of six days and all very good. Right? The Bible tells us all those things. It also tells us that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, 
and sinned against God and that they fell. And that as a result, all of, our, all of their posterity, including all of us, has a sinful nature. Right? We, we, we cannot do good. We cannot please God. We cannot follow his holy law. And thus, the need for the gospel, thus the need for the, for the Lord of glory, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, and die the death we should have died. Right? These are, these are the essential tenets of Christianity. But where did evil come from? Where did that sin come from? Right? We know it's not as clear in the scriptures, but we know we also have fallen angels right, who sinned against God. Where, where did that evil come from? Right? Where did, how did there get to be a world um, in which there wasn't just good, the good that God created, but also evil interjected into it? Um, and what do we do with that? And the most basic thing, as I told you last week, is God's revelation is sufficient but not comprehensive. We don't have a complete answer to this question. But I want to spend some time looking at what we do have to see if we can flesh out our understanding a little bit. Um, so as I often do, um, or almost always do when I have a theological question, the first thing I do is pull out the Westminster Standards. Um, they are reliable, they are true, they're an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches presented to us in a systematic way. And they've, they've stood the test of time, and I always commend them to you. So I've put up here um, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 4. Um, chapter 5 is a chapter on providence. And here is what the chapter says. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and to all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them, in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Um, I recognize that is a mouthful. I have bolded a few phrases here that I think we should discuss. So we stepping through this, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God, and they're, they're citing Romans 11 for that, um, so far manifest themselves in his providence. So God's providence is what? His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, governing all his creatures and all their actions, right? God, God, con- God controls everything. So that seems like a problem for us because there's evil in the world, and we know that God ordains everything. We know, in fact, that he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, well, gosh, foreordained. Does that mean he caused it? Well, this chapter says no, he didn't. That there's sin in the world, and God's providence extends to deciding what evil to allow, what breach of his law to allow, but he doesn't cause it. But he doesn't allow it by, by what? By a bare permission, but instead... He's joined with it a wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering. So he's controlling what sin is allowed to happen. Right? It's not as bad as it could be. Um, to his own holy ends. Right? So 
even though, even though it's sin, and even though he didn't cause it, he's using it for good. And then we're told at the end, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature, and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So, thus far, that's true, right? I'm always comfortable standing up here and putting the Westminster Standards up and telling you that, you know, there's a lot of things I'm not sure of, but there's some things that I are, I am sure of, and this is one of them, right? That you can take this to the bank. Let's look at some of the scripture involved. Um, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Um, so this is one of the proof texts used for the paragraph that we just discussed. Um, and we have here in the you know, canonical scripture in the book of James that you know, God doesn't tempt us. The, the sinful desire doesn't come from God. Um, we're enticed by our own desires. And oh, by the way, let me point out to you that it is certainly true that we are sometimes tempted by the enemy. We are sometimes tempted by Satan. Satan is real. He absolutely stalks like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. But look into your own heart, brothers and sisters. You don't need Satan to tempt you. You've got plenty of sinful desire all on your own, right? Springing forth, tempting you every, every day, every hour. Um, so blaming it on something external um, is, is probably not the most useful way to mortify your sin, right? It's our own sinful desires that we have to kill. They certainly don't come from God. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I think in verse, verse 16 is the core of this. I gave you the other two verses for context. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So when we're talking about world, I don't think it's right to read that as whole created universe. I think it's probably something more limited, like, you know, the, the you know human society, that which is around us, something like that, especially when we read it in the context of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. I don't need to elaborate for you to know what he means there. Um, <clears throat> the various lusts, the various excessive desires that we are prone to, they're not from the Father. Um, Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. Um, so this is, you know, Peter and John have been dealing with the council, right? And now they're, they're, they've been released, now they're praying. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and, Pontius, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, right? So this is talking, of course, about the crucifixion of, of Jesus. He's talking about the central event of all history, and certainly, I, I, I'm somewhat uncomfortable measuring the gravity of one sin versus another, but I think we can agree that the crucifixion of Christ was a great evil, perhaps, you know, 
the greatest evil. I'm not sure how you compare it against the original fall, but let's say it's the greatest evil. Um, that that itself was predestined, right? That God ordained that to happen. He allowed that evil to happen. And why did he allow it to happen? Well, we don't always know. In fact, most of the time, we can't know God's purpose for allowing sin to happen in the world. But in this case, we do know his purpose, right? His purpose was his plan of redemption, which is perhaps, dare I say, the greatest good, the greatest evil to facilitate the greatest good. Um, Genesis chapter 50, this is very familiar um, with Joseph speaking to his brothers. Um, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this is, of course, you know, historical, but it's also canonical. And Joseph is explaining to his brothers that their sin against him in selling him into slavery, God allowed it, and he used it to accomplish a good purpose. All right. Um, In in looking into this, I pulled out uh, Chad Van Dixhorn's excellent commentary on the Westminster Confession and read what he had to say about chapter 5, paragraph 4. And it's, it's several pages long, but I've given you Uh, one paragraph here that I hope you'll find helpful. Um, He says, True, in some way, God permits sin and governs it. And there is much about this that we do not understand. And I heartily agree with that. There is much we don't understand. But the dismal reality, as James makes clear, is that every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And he's citing James 1.14 there, which we read just a moment ago. This is just what happened to Satan, and then Eve, and then our forefather Adam. How this all began, we shall never know, but we know where it led, to the death of God's Son on the cross. Just think of that. Some say that God's permission of the first sin is a great mystery, and so it is. But it is a small mystery indeed when compared with the real wonders of God's providence that he would provide his only son to bear our sin and suffer our punishment. So I thought that was a nice capsule summary explanation of what we can take from Westminster Confession 5.4. And you know that he readily acknowledges that there is mystery here. We don't know the ultimate answer. Um, But we do know some stuff we do know some things that have been revealed to us by God. Um, and within the, within the bounds of God's revelation, we do have some understanding. Um, and then Pastor cited this to us last week, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, The secret things belong to Yahweh, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do, we may do all the words of his law. So that distinction between the secret things and the things that are revealed is one that we should keep in mind when we're contemplating these kinds of mysteries, these things where we simply don't have all the information, right? That God has given us what he's going to give us, um, and we should treasure that. We should teach it. We should meditate on it. But we shouldn't engage in vain speculation beyond what has been revealed. I think Mrs. Bullock has a question in the back. So the, uh, the comment is that you know, we can speculate that perhaps God you know, allowed Adam and Eve to be tempted in the garden um, so as to test their allegiance and love for, for God. Um, 
I think that's certainly allowable. I think it's within the bounds. You know, a lot of people have, have said, and I've, I've taught before, um, that it's widely believed that in the reform circles that Adam and Eve in the garden were not in their ultimate state, but rather in a probationary state, right? And that had they kept the first covenant, the covenant of works, they would have then entered in to, you know, a, a greater ultimate reality, something like the new heavens and the new earth. And we don't know. We have only very shadowy pictures of that, right? So I'm always hesitant to say very much about it um, because that, you know, remember the secret things belong to the Lord. Um, but but that, is, that is certainly a common, you know, belief. And so I think, you know, we don't know what God was thinking when he allowed that, but I, that's, you know, perhaps fair. Um, so anybody else got a question or comment about this origin of evil material? I realize it might not be 100% satisfactory, but I'm not going to go beyond the bounds of what the Scripture and the standards give us. But I'm happy to talk about it. All right. We've got about 15 minutes. Um, let's wrap up our class with some more uh, tweets. Um, and the, 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 this, this is fun, but remember, these are real people that are really saying this, right? I didn't make this up. So as, as much as you want to sort of say, oh my gosh, I can't believe somebody actually said that, how silly. Um, remember, you know, we're reformed. Literally, there before the grace of, grace of God go, go us, right? That if it were not for the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts, we'd be saying these same sort of silly things, right? We'd be in open rebellion against God. So we should weep for these people. That would, that would say such things. So uh, the tweet here says, religion, one of the three biggest evils in the world that makes some people become so pompous and righteous that they think they have the right to judge others as they believe what they're doing is the right way or God way. I know he doesn't say what the other two are. Um, but all right, so how, how do we deal with this class? Now, having studied this for six weeks, um, when somebody says, Let's, let's deal with the first part. Religion, one of the three biggest evils in the world. <laughs> How do you know what big is? Funny. Uh, but no, but I mean, what's the, what's the basic problem here? Somebody, so so we, say, we say, first of all, sir, um, I take it you don't believe that any of the religions that are out there are true. Am I correct? And you're probably going to say yes, right? He probably wouldn't be writing this if he was a religious believer. Okay, and you then say that you think religion is one of the three biggest evils in the world. Well, setting aside the other two, what do you mean by evil? By what standard is it evil? Because you don't, seem, you don't believe any religions are true, then what is the basis by which you judge good and evil? Um, he'll say, I mean, if you could have this conversation with this person, he's going to say something. Right, And it's going to have to come down to either external authority or it's just what I think. And even if he says, well, it's what most people think, okay, well, that's still just a matter of opinion, right? It's just a popular opinion. And do you really want to go, do you really believe that we should govern the world based upon, you know, what most people think? Really? Let's pick, so I've got some counterintuitive examples to that. Um, that won't be terribly hard. Um, okay, so, and then let's keep going. Make some people become so pompous and righteous. Now, pompous as is an adjective that sort sort of means you know puffed up maybe. But then, righteous. I take it what he what he probably means is self righteous, right? Not really righteous. <laughs> um, and say, oh, okay. So what do you mean by righteous? 
And then the right to judge others. Oh, okay. Um, that as to believe what they're doing is the right way. Okay, so I'm, I don't even, that doesn't even quite make sense, does it? Say, judge others that what I'm doing is right? I assume what he means is judge others by telling them that the way they're living their lives isn't, isn't correct. Well, um, we know that we as Christians, we aren't supposed to judge others. We are supposed to proclaim the word of God. We are, we are supposed to call people out on their sin. Um, and how do we know? Well, we know because of the Bible. But even then, what is this whole tweet doing? What's, what's the big picture of this whole, whole couple sentences? Yeah, what, you're, what they're doing is wrong. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> so this would seem to be some, somewhat problematic, right? But, um, <laughs> but of course it is. So what I've been trying to get across for six weeks now is that anything like this, any, any moral statement, any ethical statement, any statement at all is meaningful, is meaningless, rather, apart from God. Um, and then the, the, the response to this up top is somebody else who's written, ban religion on Twitter. Um, and we could have a lot of fun with, with that statement. Um, well, first of all, what do you mean by religion? So people that appeal to transcendental authority, that's, that should be not allowed? Well, why? By what standard? And what, what about the secularist? Why is it that secularism isn't a religion? You're making a very powerful statement about metaphysics, about the nature of the universe, why is your statement somehow better than my statement? Your statement that there is no God and life is meaningless, why is that a more valuable statement than I should glorify God and enjoy him forever? Um, The next one, we have another tweet here that says, yet Christians still can't prove the existence of God. Your entire religion is built upon a woman cheating on her husband and claiming it was a gift from God. Think about it. Now, this is clearly meant to be a sort of provocative statement, right? When people say stuff like this, um, it doesn't sound like somebody who's trying to have a sincere conversation, but rather to be, be provocative and denounce Christianity. And so we always want to speak with gentleness and respect, but we have to also, you know, match our tone to who we're talking about. So here, you know, you wouldn't want to escalate it and start yelling, but we've got a couple different statements here, three sentences. First one says, yet Christians still can't prove the existence of God. All right, well, how are we going to deal with that? Well, sir, I am not, you're right, I'm not going to prove to you the existence of God, because God exists, and you know he exists. And you're the one who seems to be posting stuff on Twitter um, about the nature of God in Christianity. So why don't we talk instead um, about your beliefs? I didn't make a proposition, you did. And your proposition is that your, presumably meaning Christians, entire religion is built upon a woman cheating on her husband and claiming it was a gift from God. Okay, well, how do you know, how do you know that that's what the religion is built upon, right? What's your basis for that? Um, and it might be, well, you know, I read about it on the internet, somebody told me, somebody gave me a tract. Or you might say, well, no, I've read the Bible. I doubt it, but it's possible. Okay, and so what does the Bible say, right? The Bible says that Mary was an unmarried woman. She was a virgin, and she conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? And so you presumably, in saying she cheated on her husband, what you're saying is that those facts aren't true that she, in fact, engaged in fornication prior to coming together with Joseph, and that that was how she became pregnant. Is that what you're saying, sir? Do I have it correct? 
What am I going to say next? How do you know? Right? <laughs> Were you there? <laughs> right? And the answer is certainly not. And he's going to, and you might say back, well, yeah, but we all know that virgins don't have babies. She would have had to have fornicated in order to become pregnant. So what you're really saying is you're denying the virgin birth. Is that right? So you don't believe that the you know, the, the supernatural, uh, if we call it, right, birth of Jesus is true. Well, how do you know it's not? Well, because that is, that is not how things happen. Okay, well, how do you know? Prove it to me. And, and the answer is, he doesn't, right? He's just saying stuff. And then from there, we can delve into his worldview. Really? So um, you think Christianity isn't true. Okay, I've got that. Well, how do, let's talk about what you do believe is true. And then we go right back into all the, the stuff we've been dealing with in terms of worldviews and transcendental argument. Um, all right, here's another one. This, this, this one I, I just had to put up here. Um, an argument means having premises that lead to a conclusion, right? Well, this means some kind of like, what he means, of course, a formal logical argument. Um, if you offer premises that lead to the conclusion of God, then you've made God contingent. Uh-oh. How do you think we respond to this guy? Because if we were making an evidentiary argument for God, he'd have a good point. Sort of. But what's, what's the easy response to this that I taught you the first week? Are we making an argument for God? No! Because we don't start with neutrality, because nothing is neutral. God exists. <laughs> That's our basic presupposition. We're not setting up a series of premises to prove God exists. Yeah, that would be error. I agree with you, sir. My basic presupposition is God exists. Yes, sir. And yet, yes, that is true, logically. You would say, and, and so the comment rightly says that you would tell him that it doesn't, it, it, it does not make God contingent just because you make arguments for his existence. Yes, yes, that is true. This is, this is sort of like a linguistical, logical trick he's trying to employ, right, which clearly isn't true. But I, what I would do is embrace it and say, yeah, well, I don't need to do that. I'm not, I don't need to make an argument for God where I line up a bunch of premises, right, because God exists. Um, all right. Now, here's another one. It says, the Bible tells a story of two sisters who couldn't find husbands to impregnate them, so they got their father drunk and had sex with him instead. All right, well, this is clearly a reference to Lot and his two daughters, right? And so, and you know what? Is that a true statement? Yes! <laughs> the Bible does say that, absolutely. And so, there's a lot of things you could say. You say, oh, well, I see that you've read your Bible. <laughs> um, and so, do you think everything in the Bible is normative or is it empirical, right? <laughs> is, is everything that anybody does in the Bible so, is supposed to be a moral example of how we live our lives? Are we supposed to do everything they did in the Bible? You know, like when Cain killed Abel, were we supposed to do that? When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, were we supposed to do that? <laughs> you know, clearly not, right? So, but you can see how, if you haven't thought about it, this is the kind of thing that whoever wrote this probably thinks is some kind of powerful argument. Look, the Bible describes some people doing bad stuff. <laughs> well, if you've actually read your Bible, you would know the Bible describes many people doing lots of bad stuff, right? Because we're all sinners. So does the Bible say that that was good? No. In fact, there's all sorts of bad consequences, right? The, the children that are born of those you know, incestuous unions 
lead, you know, create whole nations that cause all sorts of problems for Israel later. There's no reasonable reading of the Bible in which you could conclude that this was a virtuous you know, sort of conduct that other people should want to engage in. Um, so this just requires you to step back and think a little bit, right? But then where you can, of course, go from that is, so tell me, ma'am, do you believe, is the, do you think the Bible's true or not? And presumably she'll say no, and say, okay, well then, you seem to have a problem with Christianity. What's your problem with it? Why do you care what other people believe? What do you believe? How do you live your life? What do you think happens when you die? How do you know what's right and wrong? Um, here's another one. God hasn't made himself known in any provable way. To be a Christian, faith is necessary. Faith is unjustified belief. Clinging to unjustified belief is irrational. Therefore, to be a Christian means to be inherently irrational. All right, well, this is clearly flawed, right? Um, and honestly, depend, you, know, you might not even choose to engage with all this because it's so silly. You might instead try to, and practically, pastorally, you might instead start asking some different questions, right? But if you needed to respond to it, um, how do we deal with that? Well, let's look at the premises. God hasn't made himself known in any provable way. Really, sir? Well, did the sun come up this morning? You know, um, because, because remember, this man is lost. He, he knows God exists, but he's in open rebellion against God. He's denying the truth that is written on his heart. And so we don't just want to be, you know, rhetorically tricky. We don't just want to cut him up because we can, right? We want to try to be as winsome as we can and say, okay, well, um, let's say I disagree with you because I think that natural law, that the God is written on the face of creation. And maybe you don't see that, but I think if you were to, you know, look at the incredible complexity of the world, look at something as simple as a fish, you know, or, or some a frog or any, any kind of simple creature, and say, you know, could you make that? With all, with all the human wisdom, with all the science, with all the, everything that's out there, could we create something as simple as even, you know, even a, a dog or a cat? Well, no, of course we can't, right? The glory of God in, in, in his creation is boundless. It's unfathomable. And, and, I, and I see him echoed in everything that I see. But, but I understand that you don't think that. So you say, to, to be a Christian, faith is necessary. Well, I agree with that, sir. Yes. Yes, it is true. It is the nature of Christianity that we have faith in the gospel. Uh, well, what is faith? Well, you say faith is unjustified belief. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that, right? Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Um, and it is a belief in something that I can't perceive with my senses and prove by science. I might say that, right? But that doesn't mean it's unjustified, right? I have faith that the Bible is true. I have faith that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and died on the cross for my sins. But I have that faith because of supernatural revelation from God. So I do not agree with you, sir, that it is unjustified. In fact, it is, I might even say, a priori. It's that which I know more than I know anything else, right? I know that the gospel is true more than, than I know I'm sitting here talking to you right now because it's my first principle on which I base my other knowledge. But if, if, if by what you mean is that it's something that's not justified by ex immediate experience, you can't measure it, um, then, okay, let's set that aside for a minute. And then you say clinging to unjustified belief is irrational. Uh-oh. So you're making an appeal to reason, are you? Let's talk about that. 
What is reason? You, th- you think that it's you can, you know, you're, you trust your brain that you can reliably process information, that you can take you know various propositions and statements and weigh them against each other and reach valid conclusions. Why do you think that? What is the basis for your belief in your reason? Who is it that's really being irrational? I can tell you that I can trust my reason, and I know that because the fear of the Lord is beginning to wisdom. I know that because the Bible is true, and God created me, and I can rely on that information to get everything else. How do you know you can rely upon your reason, sir? And I think, and I think you could, you could, you know, have a reasonable conversation based on that, right? Um, to what, what does it mean this sort of faith versus reason, right? Because th- this is this is probably. This guy's got a real question here, right? Some of these other ones have just been saying obnoxious things. But this guy, this guy's positing a real question about the interaction between faith and reason, right? And so we should give him a real answer. That reason is not a foundational epistemological belief, right? Descartes was wrong. That's not where you start because there's nothing underneath it. All right. Um, I think we've got time for one more here. Therapy has stripped religion of any remaining utility. Stop finding God and start finding a therapist to help you grapple with the despair that arises from being alive. I mean, I want to talk to this guy. Right? Because think about what he says at the end, the despair that arises from being alive. If he really means that, this is a guy who understands that the, the world is a, you know, it's a veil of tears. Because if, if you don't have the hope of the gospel, is there despair from being alive? Yeah, there is if you think about it. Where is this world going? It's not pretty. Right? There's a lot of evil in the world. And if you don't have an explanation for it, and all you're going to do is experience some pain and suffering, and then you're going to die, um, yeah, I think that's bad, Right? So, okay, so, so let's, let's get some common ground there. So, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of bad, bad in the world, right? And, and people suffer a lot, right? Yeah, okay. So what do you mean? How is it that you think psychotherapy is going to help you deal with that? You're just going to sit around with somebody else who has some training, and the two of you are going to talk about why there's bad stuff in the world? Well, what answer is there? Apart from God, apart from some meaningful um, metaphysics, apart from something transcendental, what hope could there be? Right? Are you and your therapist just going to decide that the best thing for you to do is just take an overdose of morphine and just end it all? Because after all, why not? But let's talk about, you know, let's talk about God. Let's talk about religion. I take it you don't believe in God, sir. Are you sure? Have you, have you considered the God of the Bible? And if you don't believe in God... How do you live your life at all? How do you make moral and ethical decisions? How do you decide what you should do when you get out of bed every morning? Because this guy might be close, right? He's seeing the pain. He probably acknowledges you know, sin in his own life if we push him there. Talk to him about his ethics. Talk to him about his morality. Because um, remember, with all of this, right, we're, we're using these techniques to deal with the skeptic, to dismantle his worldview. But if it's already partially dismantled, maybe we don't have as much work to do, right? Maybe you've got somebody whose conscience is a little bit tender. Maybe you can do something there. 
Anyway, that's past time. I'm going to stop there. Thank you all for your attention. It's been a great pleasure teaching this class, um, and I hope that you have learned something.